Well, hey, uh, there is a guy who, a uh, rich man actually, who is near death, and um, uh, he was pretty distraught about his pending doom because he was so wealthy. And, and he just uh, was grieved because he had worked so hard for his money and, and he didn't want to leave it behind. He had given his whole life living for this. So he just began to pray. He, he knew what the Bible said, he couldn't take it with him, but he began to pray that maybe God would allow him to take it along with him. Well, uh, an angel overheard him praying and came to him and said, hey, it doesn't work like that. You, you, can't, you can't take it with you. It's like, it's, it stays here, it stays behind, sorry. Well, he was more distraught and so he, but he just kept praying and, and eventually um, he, he prayed so much that uh, the angel appeared again and informed him that God had heard his prayer and had sent him to tell him uh, just this once he was gonna make an exception and he could bring one suitcase with him, like a carry-on bag to heaven. And so uh, the guy was pretty excited and uh, he, uh, he was overjoyed and so he grabbed uh, a big suitcase and he filled it with gold bars. And he filled it up with gold bars and he set it beside his bed um, and then soon after, afterward, the man ended up dying. And as, after he died, he, he showed up at the gates of heaven and Peter came out to greet him and Peter said, well, hello, welcome. What's that? You can't bring that in here. That's gotta stay outside. And the guy said, no, you don't understand. I, I, had, I have permission to bring just this one bag with me. Peter gave him a look. He says, hold on, I'll be right back. He goes in, <clears throat> comes back and he goes, okay, I guess you can bring just that one with you, but I need to check that bag before you bring it in. And so he opens it up, lays it on the table, and Peter looks at it and he goes, is this all you got in here? And he said, yeah. He goes, why'd you bring a suitcase full of pavement? <clears throat> because heaven, the streets are paved with what? Gold. The things that we value so much in this life and on this earth, in eternity, will pale in comparison to what God has planned for us and to being in his presence and the goodness that will be there. You know, we're in this series called Bookends. I've got a couple here. And uh, today we're looking at the two bookends. Um, and, and bookends, by the way, what we mean by that is that God's word is bookended by uh, very similar themes and very similar things in Genesis 1 and 2 and then in Revelation 21 and 22, the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the Bible. And uh, on the one bookend, we're gonna see this morning that God plants a garden and he puts Adam and Eve in it. And uh, he gives them work to do while they're their work that's fulfilling and good and joyful. And he walks among them and everything's great. And then at the end, we're gonna see the other bookend where it goes from a garden to a city where again, God is in the midst of the city and he walks with his people and he has work for us to do and it's, it's good and it's perfect. And so that's where we're headed this morning. And I have these bookends, uh, Tim Stephan gave me their, uh, his dad made them. Um, but uh, heaven is just full of precious jewels. Uh, the pavement there is the most precious thing here uh, because God's presence is there, making it infinitely valuable. And the, so we're gonna see the garden, 
But we're going to talk a little bit about the junk in the middle, and then we're going to talk about the city that's to come. So with that, let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you, uh, Jesus, that... um, One, you were there at creation. You made everything. You walked among Adam and Eve in the garden. uh, That uh, even after they messed everything up, Lord, you promised to fix uh, our mess, to fix our sin. And all throughout, even in the midst of our sin, you promised to be our God, to be with us, to dwell with us, that we'd be your people. And then Jesus, we see as we look into the future that not only have you dealt with our sin to forgive us, but uh, you're coming to rule and to reign and to perfect us and to take uh, all the mess of sin and pain of life away. And those will truly be good days. Days that uh, we won't miss anything that we might leave behind here. So uh, Holy Spirit, would you uh, give us that vision in our hearts of, of truly Uh, who you are, your goodness toward us, and uh, help me as I teach and work through your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Really, this is the most important verse in all of Genesis, because if I really believe this, then uh, everything else is easy to believe. If I really believe God is is powerful and in control, and we talked about how big our God is last week, and one of the things that God does is after creating everything, we get an account of of how he created everything in Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 2, it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to slow down, we're going to zoom back in on one part of creation, specifically the creation of humanity and of marriage and and all of these things we'll see over these next two weeks, And, and we zoom back in on part of that in chapter 2, so it's not a second account of creation. It's just a circling back and zooming in and taking a closer look at how some of it unfolded. And one of the things we see this morning in that turnaround is that God plants a garden. He plants a garden. He created everything, but then east of Eden, we read, uh, we're going to see this, he he planted a garden and he put the man in it and, and gave it to him to work and to enjoy the man, mankind, man and woman, gave it to them to work and to enjoy. And let's just start reading uh, in uh, chapter two about the garden. If you got your Bible, uh, Genesis is right at the very beginning. And uh, if not, it'll be here on the screen as well. Chapter two, uh, starting in verse four. Here's what we read. Moses is writing this. He says, Uh, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Uh, Moses says this a lot in Genesis. These are the generations, and it's this clue that he's starting into something to tell us something about history, something important in terms of salvation history and God's plan and who God is and who we are. Uh, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens or the earth and the heavens. Uh, One thing here too to note, this is the first time this term, the Lord God, shows up. That might not mean much to you, but if if you were a reader in this day and you saw this in Hebrew, you would see that uh, in chapter one, every time we read God, it just uses God's name Elohim, which is a Hebrew word. But here, starting in chapter two, we see Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. So chances are in your Bible, Lord is all capitalized, indicating that's God's personal name. 
And what that implies is that uh, the covenant-making, personal God, Yahweh, that God created everything. The one who loves you, who knows you, who cares intimately about every detail of your life. He's the one right here now in the garden. It's not just any God. It's the Lord God, our God. Well, uh, he created everything when there was no bush of the field yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Uh, For the Lord God had caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from, or a spring uh, going up from the land was watering the whole face of the ground. And um, all of this, as we're kind of circling back, looking at it again, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And do you know what his name was? Adam, which uh, is very similar to the, to the word Adama, which means dirt. <laughs> Adam's name was dirt. He was the dirt man because he was formed out of the dust of the ground. Uh, he, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and suddenly he became alive. And he had... In, in being created, you know, this is the one thing too, everything else, how did God create it? He, he spoke it into existence. But humanity, how does God form it, form us? With his hands, intimately, personally, carefully, creatively. And we're unique among all his creation in that we bear his image. The, the crown jewel of everything that he's made. And so you and I have value, dignity, and worth because of that truth. And nothing else in creation is anywhere close to that value before God because we bear his image. Well, um, then we read that the Lord God planted a garden. Not only did he fashion Adam with his hands carefully, intimately, but then look, he plants a garden for him in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Uh, Eden, by the way, means paradise. That's what Eden means. Uh, it, it means paradise. It means, um, it carries with it, the, with it this idea of luxury and pleasure. Uh, and it denotes a region that's bigger than the garden itself. Because if you notice, uh, the Lord God planted a garden where? In Eden. In Eden is where the garden was. And the earliest translation of the Bible uh, in uh, into Greek, uh, uses a term for garden, the garden that he planted it in, uses a term that means, carries with it this idea of a royal garden or a royal park, like a national park. And when we look at some of the, 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 the factors at play here in the rivers and the land, and this was a big piece of land. But let's just, let's just keep reading and look more at the garden. The Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight. Do you got a favorite tree? God made it spring to life in the garden. You got a favorite fruit, a nut that grows on a tree? Everything that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every good tree that's good to look at, good for shade, good for eating from, good to climb, every good tree. 
And then there were two trees that are named, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we keep reading that from this garden, there's a river, or from Eden, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and it became four rivers. And these rivers that are mentioned, uh, some still exist today. A couple others were not real clear uh, where they are or if they've dried up but because of after the flood, the topography changed so much after Genesis six through nine. Uh, but these first two, we don't really know much about. The name of the first is the Pishon. It, it was the one that flowed around the whole land of, of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Uh, Dalyum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river that uh, Moses lists here and writes about is the Tigris, or excuse me, I skipped ahead, is the Gahan. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Cush is like down into Ethiopia and uh, that area into Africa, big area of land. Then the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, that still exists. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, which still exists. And so we're not um, real clear and by the way, it doesn't matter a whole lot other than it was in that region, but the, the Garden of Eden, we're not real clear exactly where it was. Its exact location is unknown, but based on some of the things we read, assuming that the topography is, is somewhat similar to the way it was before the flood, it was likely either in the Persian Gulf uh, down in Iraq or, or up in a uh, high plain area up in modern day Turkey. Do we know that for sure? No. It's the best guess, but it's likely in one of those regions. Well, um, after God plants this garden, notice what he does. He takes the man and he puts him in the garden. He puts him in to just chill out and do nothing for the rest of his life. That's, I mean, just to retire and kick back, right? Is that what it says? No, what's he do? He put him in the garden of Eden to work it to keep it. And Eden was, uh, the garden was a sanctuary where God's presence was. The same language is used of the priests when they go in to serve in the temple and in the tabernacle, they were put in there to keep it and to work and to serve God. And Adam and Eve, are, uh, they serve as, as priests before God, serving him in, in everything they do. And there's work, friends. Before sin entered the world, there's work. God gave us work to do things to accomplish. Um, now, here's the difference. Work then that was untainted and unharmed by sin was always satisfying. You, you always feel good at the end of the day. Do you, you have those days? Like you get some work accomplished and you step back and you're like, yeah, that turned out pretty good. It was a good day. Every day is like that in the garden. Everything is satisfying. That the frustration of work isn't there. We'll see as we move forward uh, in this series that frustration does come because of our sin, and working the ground becomes painful and hard and toiling for Adam. But at this point, work is good, and and I would commend to you that in heaven there'll be work to do. There'll be things to do, ways to serve God, things you enjoy doing and it'll be totally fulfilling every time. Uh, let's keep going, verse 16 here in the garden. The Lord God commanded the man and he said, uh, surely you can eat of every tree of the garden. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? 
this huge garden, all these trees, all this fruit, the nuts, the, uh, what else grows on trees? I don't know. All of it's there for him to enjoy, to eat from, to care for. But he says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, uh, you may surely, uh, ooh, I have that in there twice. Uh, but the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. N- notice there's one negative command that God gives. His other commands, we're gonna look at some of them here in a moment to Adam and Eve, were all positive commands. Go do this, enjoy this, uh, knock yourself out at this, but don't do that. That's the one thing not to do. And yet so often we can look at God's word and uh, we believe the lie that, that God doesn't want good for us that his rules are just manipulative and it's him having his thumb on us. And so when he, he tells us certain things, whether it's about um, uh, morality or sexuality or whatever else, that, that somehow that's evil and that's wrong. No, it's not. God gave great freedom. God gave great freedom and he loves you. And the reason he gives commands, good and bad, is because of his love for you. When he tells Adam, don't eat from that tree, why is he telling him? Because if you eat of it, you're gonna die. It's gonna go bad for you. If you take the fork and stick it in the light socket or stick it in the outlet, it looks fun, especially to two-year-olds. It looks fun. It doesn't end well. <laughs> doesn't end well. Don't do that. Why? Don't hurt yourself. That's why God says, don't. And so he gives uh, these positive commands, the one negative command, and Adam is in the garden. And uh, as we fast forward, we know that he and Eve both break that command and everything uh, becomes a mess. The work gets hard, childbearing is painful, and everything else in between just gets messed up. But God also promises in that moment that his original intention, which we're gonna look at this morning, hasn't been completely thwarted because he's gonna fix everything and restore his original intent in the end. See, uh, Eden was paradise because there was no sin. Life was good. Can you imagine life without sin? I mean, we long for it. We long for those things, right? We long for goodness. We long for justice. We long for things to be right. We long for joy. But I cannot fathom a life where all of that is true all the time. It just, it doesn't compute in my head because of my sin. And yet that's what life was like then. They walked with God. They were naked and unashamed and there was, there was no guilt there was no tension in relationship. There was, <laughs> there was nothing wrong. And yet when the moment they ate of the fruit, we'll come to that in the weeks ahead, everything went sour. Uh, but the other reason it was paradise is not just because there was no sin, but because God's presence was there. God walked among them in the garden and he was with them. 
Can you imagine coming home at the end of the day and you go for a walk and God walks alongside you and he starts asking about your day. How was your day today? No, seriously, tell me. Like, I wanna know all of it. And he's intimately interested in everything going on in your life. Listen, number one, he still is. And he longs for you to talk to him and tell him those things. That's what prayer is, it's just talking to God. But imagine that in terms of a perfect relationship where there's no, nothing hindering it. That, that was Eden. And that will be heaven. And one of the things, uh, when God puts them in the garden and he walks among them, it's the beginning. I mentioned his personal name was there, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. He's the covenant keeping God, making and keeping God. And his covenant, this is just one example in Jeremiah that shows up over and over and over and over and over again. He keeps reminding his people, reminding us because we forget. He says, uh, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and I'll dwell among you. And it might be messed up now, but this is going to happen. And it was like that in Eden. They were his people, he was their God, he, he walked among them in the garden. God came to dwell with humanity. Um, and that's how it ends too. John, uh, when he begins his uh, recording of the revelation of Jesus, uh, chapter one, third verse, he says, I heard this loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man with mankind, He's, he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. When John heard that, when he gets this vision, John knowing his Bible really well, goes, oh, it's happening. This is exactly what God promised and what he intended way back in the garden. And God's intent in the garden when he planted it, wasn't for it just to remain a garden, but for it to grow into a city. God planted a garden, he put Adam, put Eve in the garden, and his intent was for it to grow and to develop into a city. Like, how do you know that, Josh, are you sure? Well, uh, let's look at what God told them to do. He created them in his image, Genesis chapter one, we read these, verse last, these verses last week that uh, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, verse 27. But uh, notice what they're to do after they're made in his image. They, they're given an identity, then they're told to go live it out. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, uh, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28 really uh, picks up this idea. God blessed them and then God says to them, to Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I mean, can you imagine Adam and Eve, like God says, be fruitful, okay. How? In your work, in everything you do, in your relationship, in your family, and multiply, really? How many kids? Fill the earth. Fill the earth, Adam. Have a lot of kids. Now, if the earth is filled with people, what is that by definition? Keep multiplying. It's a city. It's a city. It's, it's, it's all of God's people filling 
the earth. And they're to be fruitful in all they do and in their relationship and in their family and, and fill the earth and subdue it. So uh, take the trees that are yours to enjoy and uh, to eat from and to climb and to sit in the shade under. See what you can make out of them. Subdue it. Build. Uh, dig into the ground. See what you find. What kind of technology could you develop to, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth? God's intent for Adam and Eve were to develop the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and develop the garden into a city with the intent that not only does God walk with them and, and come to dwell among them in the garden, but now uh, his glory increases all the more as there's more image bearers and he lives among them in a city. In a city, so you see? From garden to city. Um, now, uh, some of you are thinking to yourself, I live in rural America, doggone it. I'm not a city gal. I'm not a city guy. What's this talk of city? I don't, I hate the city. I hate the traffic. I hate the smell. I don't like all these people around me. I want the wide open spaces. You know, some of you are feeling that, aren't you? And suddenly you're hearing this idea of a city in the end, that heaven's a city, and you're going, oh man, I'm kind of disappointed. Let me tell you, uh, our idea of a city is a city that's been corrupted by sin, that's about exalting mankind, build the biggest building, make the most money, uh, grow the biggest kingdom, and there's crime and sin and decay and all these things that manifest themselves to a greater degree because there's more sinners in the city. <laughs> it's the same here too, by the way. We're all pretty messed up. But the reality is that uh, the city that God has intended here for Adam and Eve and the city that does show up in Revelation is a city without sin, where sin has been dealt with, where it's been cared for, where all the good things of the city are there, where God lives and moves among his people. It's perfect. And, and you know, uh, Charles uh, Dickens wrote a famous historical novel, 1859, titled The Tale of Two Cities, A Tale of Two Cities, I think was his. Um, had nothing to do with what we're talking about today, about uh, London, Paris, before the French Revolution, but uh, little did he know, maybe he did, but I'm not sure, um, he was really imaging God in that because scripture tells the tale of two cities as well. All throughout its pages, from the very beginning of Genesis, especially from chapter three on. Um, see, what happens is Adam and Eve, well, they're placed in the garden, told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, build a city. They're innate city builders. They're to be creators, just like their God is a creator and a maker, and they're to follow him in that way. And uh, so they begin to be fruitful, but they, they sin, everything gets messed up, right? And so now instead of building and multiplying and filling the earth in a way that honors God, that God dwells among them and lives among them and everything is good, now they do it not for God's glory, but for their own glory. 
and it becomes about them. And it's not God's story that they're a part of, but no, God just happens to be part of our story. See, God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He said the same thing to Noah after the flood, after they got off the ark, be fruitful, Noah, multiply, fill the earth. His intent had it changed. And then in Genesis chapter 11, uh, we read the account where the, the whole earth had one language, they used the same words, and the people had moved and migrated from the east and they found a plain uh, in what is modern day Iraq and uh, they settled there and they said to one another, hey, come, let's, let's, make, let's make bricks. We'll burn them thoroughly. And so, in other words, they, had, they made brick for stone and they had bitumen for mortar. They're gonna build something. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city. We're city builders. Let's build a city. And it's going to have a tower with its top in the heavens. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to make a name for ourselves because it's going to be an awesome city with the tallest buildings. And uh, it's, it's going to be fantastic. And we got to do this lest we get spread over the whole face of the earth. We, never, we don't want that to happen. Let's back up. What was God's command? Be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill the earth. For, for what reason? Well, to enjoy his presence, to, to honor him. But in, in this case, they're building a city not to honor God, but with themselves at the center, to make a name for ourselves. And why? In disobedience to God. See, sin has crept in and it's made a mess. They don't want to be displaced over the face of the earth. They don't want to be fruitful and multiply and fill it. I want to do, I don't like that idea, God. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Conversations we've all had, literally or mentally, with God. Well, as we keep, if we were to keep reading in Genesis 11, we would read that God came to see the city and the tower and uh, he was worried of what they would do now speaking one language and how their sinfulness would multiply and nothing he said would be impossible for them in their brokenness. So he goes down, he confuses their language uh, so they, they don't understand each other's speech and it forces them to disperse over all the earth and different ethnicities are formed and the name of the place, verse nine says, was called Babel because that's where the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Babel, it's called. But do you know what it's called every other time that word shows up in the Old Testament? The, the Hebrew word? Babylon. I'm not smart enough to know enough Hebrew to know why it's translated different here, but. Uh, but there's definitely a connection there because all throughout the storyline of scripture, we see God and his people at odds with Babylon, with another city, with another kingdom, one that's focused on uh, humanity and, and sin and defying God and doing what they want and then God's city and his bride and his people living pure and righteous and in goodness. And there's this conflict all the way through scripture, all the way through the Old Testament and, and, and all through Revelation, as you understand this, of, of Babylon and Zion. We sang about Zion earlier. Do you know what that is? It's just another term for Jerusalem, 
for the mount on which Jerusalem sits, the place of God's city, of his presence in the Old Testament and where the new Jerusalem will come, the new Zion. So let's talk about that because we know a lot about, uh, I don't need to convince you of the horrors of, of, of Babylon in which we live as exiles. So how about uh, the city that's to come? We've talked about the garden. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the city. And now you can take your Bible and go to the other end of it and go to uh, Revelation chapter 21. And uh, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 10. And uh, John here is uh, writing uh, what he sees and the spirit of the Lord came and the spirit came, it carried to him, or an angel came, excuse me, carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prior to this, in the chapters prior, we read about the conflict between Babylon and this new city. Having the glory of God, its, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Now, one thing you gotta understand about this, as John writes, he's describing things as best he can see them. You know, he, he's just writing what he sees. And so much of Revelation is metaphoric, and there's a lot of imagery there because John's just writing what he sees as best he can to communicate it. There's, there's parts of Revelation that are very literal that we take literally, but much of it we take metaphorically. And some, you could take it one way or the other, and there's parts I'm not sure which way to take it, if I'm honest with you. But it'll make sense in the end as God reveals those things, I believe. But the reason I say that is because even some of these descriptions we're gonna see of this city, uh, I think, think we need to take metaphorically in a lot of ways. That John's just describing what he sees. And maybe this would be helpful before we even launch into it. Imagine uh, you, uh, God calls you to become a missionary and he sends you to the remotest part on the face of the earth. And I don't know where that might be, but let's just say Papua New Guinea, right? So he sends you to Papua New Guinea. And he puts you there and he puts you among a tribe of people who have never uh, seen someone dressed like you're dressed with that many clothes on, um, that they don't speak your language. They're still living in a primitive life in the stone age. And in other words, all their tools are, are made still and their weapons of stone. And uh, God has sent you to this people. And you live with them for decades. You befriend them, you learn their language, you learn to, to converse with them. And at some point as you've developed this relationship, you wanna bring them up to speed, a little more modern technology, right? And so you're like, you're trying to describe to them electricity. How would you describe electricity to them? They've never left the place they live. They've never gone anywhere else or traveled. They have no, uh, no category with which to understand this. And so you just start to explain it as best you can. Electricity is kind of like, uh, well, it's like this, it's like a power. It's kind of like the spirit and it, it moves and it flows. Yeah, kind of like a spirit. Um, and, it, and it comes into your community and into your house on, on wires that you can you know, hang on poles or bear, uh, wires. Uh, it's like these vines that come in on, on trees or maybe they're in the ground and uh, then you, you, know, you get it to your house and you hook it up to your panel and then you go, well, 
you cut a hole in the roof of your hut and you bring it in and you hook it up to stuff and you have, life is cool. (laughs) How do you explain that? John is seeing things that Paul says no, no one has ever dreamt how amazing it'll be. No one has ever experienced it, these things that God has planned for those who love him. And much of Revelation is John describing as best he can to us in a category that that we can't totally comprehend until we get there, what it's gonna be like. So with that in mind, keep that in mind and look for some of the metaphor then of maybe what is it John's trying to communicate. well, clearly, uh, this city that's coming down, it has the glory of God, so it's valuable. It's, it's a perfect city if it has God's glory. It's, it's radiance is, it's like a most rare jewel. It's like, like a jasper. It's, it's clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. It was, it was a big city with, with 12 gates. Remember, cities in, in this day and in the Old Testament especially uh, were, would have been surrounded by walls for protection, and, and people uh, went into the city at night because there would have been darkness and evil lurking outside. So you went in during the night and inside the wall and at 12, 12 high gates and at the gates were 12 angels, 12 messengers and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. John's telling us this is, this is a city for God's people, for all of them, from every tribe. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Um, 12 isn't a real symbolic word throughout scripture, but it is here. Um, not overly symbolic anyway. I mean, there's the the 12 tribes of Israel, God's old covenant people, and now we see the 12 apostles of the lamb, meaning Jesus. The 12 apostles who are God's new covenant people. All of God's people are brought together here in this city. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Uh, in in uh, our measurements, that'd be about pushing 1,400 miles in length. Um, its length and its width and its height are equal. What's that describing, geometry students out there? A cube. You know, uh, one artist uh, rendered what this might have looked like and kind of drew this based on some of John's descriptions that the city that he's seeing coming down maybe looked like, I don't know, maybe looked like this. But when we look at it, we go, that's a weird city. One, it's huge. So I think that's one thing John's trying to communicate. It's really big. Um, but uh, a cube, like 1,400 miles high? I've never heard of a city in that shape. 
what John's implying here, he's trying to make us think, I think, because he's describing as best he can what he sees. Where else in scripture is there a cube? Do you know? Do you know your biblical geometry? <laughs> there's there's a, one spot that a cube shows up in the temple. This is Solomon's temple and in the outer courts were the courts where people could come to worship and then in the, in the holy place, just inside the doors of the temple, uh, the priests would go and serve the Lord and uh, like in the New Testament, we read about Zechariah, gets his opportunity to go and burn incense uh, not long before Jesus was born. And then uh, once a year, the high priest would go into this place, which had equal width and length and height and was covered in gold and was beautiful. And that was the most holy place where God's presence was. And so uh, when John sees this cube that is covered in gold and precious metals and stones and it's perfect on every side and it encompasses all of God's people, this is God's presence. This city is gonna be a place where God dwells. I mean, let's just keep reading here for a moment. Um, uh, We read this already. The city is four square. Uh, The the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And he lists all of these. And these would have been the same jewels that would have been on... uh, the garment the high priest would have worn in to the holy of holies. He's telling us something here about God's presence among his people. And I saw no temple in the city. Wait a second, John, you were just talking about God's presence. What do you mean no temple? Well, because it's, it's clearly, the metaphor here is the holy of holies, God's presence. Why would you have a temple inside the temple? God's presence is there. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb, it's Jesus. See, any any city they'd been part of up to this point and any city that we might go to, we look at it and we go, there's decay, there's sin, there's crime, there's uh, don't go out when it's too dark. When this city, no darkness. It's always light because it's pure. There's no sin. And by its light, the light of the Lamb, the light of Jesus, the nations will walk, all the people. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. You don't have to shut the gates up at night to keep people out. There's peace, perfection, goodness. And nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, only those, not who've done it right and gotten it all together, but only those who've trusted Jesus and your name is written in his account because all of his righteousness has been credited to you and all of your junk has been credited and debited to him. And so God plants a garden to grow it into a city where he will live with us, where he'll live with us. And in living with us, he loves us, friends, and and he wants what's good for us. 
He does. That covenant language, or he'll be our God and uh, we'll be his people and he'll live among us. You know, there was an account, uh, Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament who prophesied that uh, to God's people, hey, you've disobeyed him and uh, you're gonna be disciplined for your sin. He's gonna carry you into exile and it's gonna be rough. Um, But he's not gonna leave you there. And, And he begins writing, and this shows up throughout the Old Testament at different times. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, It's given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. See, their city of Jerusalem was being conquered by the city of Babylon. He says, behold, and it was because of their sin, behold, I will gather them, these people have been taken away from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. He's looking ahead to this new city and they will be my people. There it is, I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and and one way that they would fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. That's why God does these things because he loves us and it's for our good. I'll, I'll make with them an everlasting covenant, unbreakable, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me into their hearts that they might not, that they may not turn from me and I will rejoice in doing them good. Sometimes we think maybe God just begrudgingly gives in. Eh, I suppose I'll let you have a good day today. No, he rejoices in doing good for his people. And in that day, it'll be all good. I'll plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I'll bring upon them all the good that i promise them. Just as whatever struggle you're going through in life that's been brought upon you, God will also bring his goodness upon you in the end. He loves you and he wants what's good for you. He calls you to trust Christ. Well, as we wrap up, uh, Jesus says something that you'll recognize Uh, he says this, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Speaking of this new city where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and do not steal. And then he says this, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now there's other places in scripture where uh, scripture tells us and Jesus tells us to guard our hearts. The proverb says guard your heart because from it flow the wellsprings of life. Um, But Jesus isn't telling us here to guard our hearts. He's telling us to choose your treasure. Where's your treasure? Your, Your greatest treasure. Which city is it in? Is it in the new city that's to come where it's unperishable and unfading and good and perfect or is it here in Babylon? (laughs) Because wherever you place your greatest treasure, your heart's gonna follow. Whatever you choose as your treasure, your heart's gonna follow, whether that's a relationship or your kids or, uh, and by the way, that's fine to love your kids and care for them, but guess what? Uh, at some point, they're gonna move out 
And then where your heart has followed your treasure, your heart's gonna be broken. Or maybe it's a career and trying to get to a certain level of financial security. But again, that can go away in an instant and your heart would be broken. No, put it in a place. Choose your treasure from a place where moths don't eat, where the thief doesn't break in and steal, where rust doesn't corrupt and destroy. Because wherever you choose your treasure, your heart, your life will follow. Where's your treasure? Let me pray.